Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome to our latest edition of the Mouthy IP. Today, we have our usual list of characters from the ICAP team. We have Kate Tyner and Sarah Stream. We also have Dr. Richard Hankins and a special guest today, Dr. Santarpia. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Dr. Josh Santarpia. I'm uh, part of the pathology and microbiology department at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Um, where I study uh, biological aerosol particles, um, in particular those that uh, are involved in the transmission of disease. So my research group is the Infectious Aerosol Research Group. And so we do, we've done a lot of work around uh, COVID-19 and aerosol production by patients, as well as uh, other, um, before COVID-19, we did a lot of work in the measurement and detection of biological particles. So. Um, so this is COVID-19 was right up our alley when it happened. Nice. Sarah, do you ever want to describe why we invited our special guest today? Yeah. So normally on our podcast, we have a listener submitted question and we kind of go into the infection control and prevention strategies that surround that question. But I was um, introduced to a really interesting article, journal article. Um, and it is about dental mitigation strategies to reduce COVID-19 spread. And in it, they do some aerosol tests in a laboratory setting. So we asked Dr. Santarpia to come on to our show and um, kind of, we're going to do kind of a little bit of a journal review here and talk about this journal article and um, some of the real world implications that it could have. And we will attach the article link into the show notes so you are able to uh, read along as we talk about this. Cool. So I think that um, before we get started, Dr. Hankins is going to be kind enough to summarize our article for us so everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah. So the article that we we're discussing today was the dental mitigation strategies to reduce aerosolization of SARS-CoV-2. Um, this is a journal article that was published in 2021 in the Journal of Dental Research. It was done at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. Uh, and so what they did in order to analyze aerosolization of SARS-CoV-2 was utilizing a bacteriophage in order to see uh, as a to mimic the, the virus and to see how it aerosolized in certain circumstances. Um, so they set up a design, they were trying to mimic a, a dental facility. And so they used uh, an area that had a, an airflow of nine air exchanges per hour. And they set up a, um, a mannequin and they, um, used false teeth in the mannequin. They supplied uh, saliva coming out of the mannequin and then they were doing uh, 
They were using two different uh, methods for producing aerosol uh, for producing aerosols. One with a uh, high-speed uh, air turbine handpiece, and the other with a high-speed contra-angle handpiece. And so. Uh, analyzing what happened with these two handpieces, they assessed different mitigation strategies, including, including high volume aspiration uh, was the first, utilizing a rubber dam was the second, and the third aerosol mitigating uh, procedure that they looked at was using an AspiJet 25, which is an aerosol extraction device. And so they looked at using those two, uh, two handpieces and looking at how well uh, these three mitigation strategies uh, worked, they set up uh, settle plates around the, the patient to see uh, how much of this bacteriophage that was in the uh, false saliva, uh, how, how much that was spread around the patient, landed on these settle plates and then evaluating the settle plates. So that was the study. Um, the results we'll get into, but I was hoping uh, to have Dr. Santarpia kind of discuss uh, usage of this bacteriophage uh, in evaluating the um, aerosol generating procedures. Yeah, so, um, I mean, the use of bacteriophage in, in uh, sort of aerosol modeling has been around for quite a while. Um, in fact, I think uh, we, we have five, six in my lab, uh, which is the phage that they used in the study, um, and I got it actually specifically to for, for the purposes of doing things just like this, um, where you don't want to do work with an actual human or even an animal infectious virus, um, and you'd rather have something that's a reasonably good model for its aerosolization and its general stability. Um, it's not perfect, obviously, but um, or it's not an exact replica, but um, they're, it's a reasonable, um, I think they're reasonable surrogates in this context. Um, I'd, I'd, big proponent of actually using phages models, especially when you're trying to step up from a low risk experiment to a, a higher risk experiment. It's good to have experiments like this um, to justify, either justify the need for experiments with infectious materials or to essentially say you've, you've learned enough just using a model organism that you can move on with, uh, with your understanding. So I, I, I think Phi6 is actually a good choice um, in here, I think you, they probably could have used other one, other other phage, uh, some others like MS2, um, are a little more stable than Phi6 likely um, as an aerosol, but um, I think Phi6 is probably the most comparable of the, the commonly available bacteriophage uh, to an, a human envelope virus. So, Dr. Santarpia, I am a nurse by training. And that's, this is one of my, like the critical lack of understanding I had with the article is, you know, I, I understand when we take like a bacteria and we can grow it on a plate. Mm -hmm. and when you work with a, a bacteria phage like this, are you actually, are you using it as like a marker for a virus or are you actually growing out virus and counting viral particles? Like that's the um, part that I really had trouble understanding. Yeah, so in this case, like the, the bacteriophage is a, it's a virus specific for the Pseudomonas uh, species that they use. And bacteriophage are ultra, ultra, well, they tend to be very ultra specific for, for species. So a lot of times there aren't um, even cross, 
between species in the same genera, although there are some broad spectrum phage. Um, but Phi6 is pretty specific for this, uh, this species of Pseudomonas. Um, and in fact, I think it, it prefers a particular subspecies of Pseudomonas, of Pseudomonas syringae. So um, essentially what they do is they're looking at, it would be the way they're doing this, the culture plate, like the, um, the settle plate stuff, is really more related to, you're not gonna enumerate the number of viruses because you might have multiple viruses in a single particle, but you should enumerate the number of viral particles, like particles that contain virus. It'd be hard to tell how many viruses were in a single droplet, for instance, particularly on the settle plates. Um, for the, the aerosol capture devices where they're actually pulling it in on a filter and then recovering it and then plating it, those would probably be more indicative of the number of actual viruses and not the number of particles, just because the differences in how they, they process those samples. And so in this study, they use settle plates. And so is that how you would normally assess uh, um, this? Sort so of they, they actually did both settle plates and, um, and an aerosol collection device. Uh, that ran at about 400 liters a minute, give or take. Doing the two, I think, was the right is the right answer because there's a couple of things going on. There's some very large aerosol particles um, that we might consider more like in that uh, droplet range. I've kind of since this is a you know these are intentionally aerosol generated generating procedures. This is trying to go after the really big stuff, probably hundreds of microns to maybe even millimeter sized droplets that are coming out of the mouth. Um, and then just sort of getting sprayed um, around the room. Um, so they did have a high volume. If you look at figure one, um, you can see that they have these uh, the micro MB2 samplers on either side of the head, and then the Canamax particle counter sort of at the patient's foot and right behind the patient's head. So those are actually mm -hmm. measuring aerosol like those are gonna be measuring more of your aerosol particles, the things that are in the sort of less than 10 micron range. Um, the, neither of those samplers are ones that I, that I use, but um, the Canamax is a pretty well-known one. It's a, you know, it's, it's a lower fidelity. Again, one of the things if it were me doing it, that I might do a little different is I, I'd like to have more fidelity in the particle size distributions, but that's just because that's what I do. Um, and, I like to see the shape of the distribution to see if it means anything or not. Um, but the aerosol collection devices they use, um, I think are, um, you know, they're gonna give you that aerosol portion of it, whereas the settle plates are really just gonna give you that splatter stuff. The aerosol portion is the stuff that has the potential to have more, more loft um, than, than does the, and, you know, maybe transport farther um, than to the, the larger things that sort of will settle out on the settle plates. It's, it's actually sampling 400 liters at 100 liters a minute. So they're taking four minute uh, interval samples around the different parts of the procedure, um, like sort of during and then four, six minutes after, like after a six minute wait time after the procedure's done. So, um, okay. yeah, so they're, they're taking air samples. And I think those are, um, I mean, they're, they're pretty close. I, the one thing that I think might be, um, might be a little bit concerning is that those air samples might be a little too close and they might be not knowing exactly how they sample. They might be getting some of the droplet fraction that I wouldn't necessarily want them to get um, if I was really trying to separate the two. 
not knowing how that behaves, you might be there some potential for contamination, I think, from the, the larger droplets. So overall, though, do you think it's a sound study design? Yeah, overall, I think it's a reasonable study design. Like I said, there's little things I might do to change it or improve it, but I, I don't think there's any reason not to not to believe the data that's generated here. Awesome. Dr. Hankins, did you want to talk about the results? <laughs> yeah, I can talk about the results. So uh, for my for me understanding the results, I was mostly looking at table one, which is on page five. Um, which was showing the five, six uh, plaque forming units um, in each of the different settings that, that we previously talked about. And so it showed utilizing the air turbine with no mitigation, it was seeing uh, over a thousand um, in plaque forming units with a high volume aspiration, um, 1400, but when we started when we use a dental dam, that dropped significantly down to 106. And with the aerosol extraction device, it was 1,200. But with a high-speed contra angle, um, the uh, aerosols dropped significantly to where the no mitigation was below 100, and the high-volume aspiration was uh, at 64, still below 100. And then utilizing a dam with the high-speed contra angle, five. So. The other thing that I think is worthwhile, like a lot of our listeners are dental professionals, so they would understand the differences of the control measures. But that was the part for like the rest of us, you know, understanding what mitigation strategies they put in place, how close to real world practice are they? And, you know, are there any barriers created? You know, like I can't use, like particularly, I thought the high speed contra angle, like when you look at the um, figure two, where it really gives in like graphic form how um, much more safe the high-speed contra angle looks. Um, what would be the barrier? Like, why would we not say we should always use a high-speed contra angle? So I, I think these are really interesting results and speak a lot to the different mitigation strategies that we use in dentistry. And um, some of these things are considered standard of care. Um, so when we look at the two different hand pieces they use, like Kate was mentioning earlier, they use an air-driven turbine hand piece, high-speed hand piece. And this is basically a, a high-pressure stream of air that rotates a turbine that the burr is inserted into, and that's what makes it spin. So you always have directional airflow with that hand piece. Every time you use it, it's blowing air everywhere, which... Um, you know, just logically makes sense that you're going to have more aerosols generated. With the high-speed contra angle, this is an electric handpiece. So they don't have that air, the air-driven turbine. It's an electric motor in there. So you don't have, there's still a little bit of airflow with those, but not to the extent of the, the air turbine-driven handpieces. So just using that electric handpiece alone um, seemed to have dropped that, um, aerosols down to a lower level. So knowing that actually one of my big questions coming into this is I don't know anything about the dental tools. Um, I don't know what they're <laughs> called when they get stuck in my mouth. I just, you know, I just know what they are. Um, but uh, so hearing that 
kind of it 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 actually brings up one of their one of the caveats to the study the authors point out, which is that the the mannequin wasn't breathing or doing anything that people do that actual live people do, um, and I think that that there might be some considerable um, difference where the mannequin breathing, right? I think you're getting, there's no mechanism of air transport out in the case of the contra angle in this study, like the, because there's no exhaust air coming from the mannequin. So even if there were particles generated, they might not, um, you're just relying on sort of the local air movement around the, the mannequin to transport particles. And so it actually doesn't surprise me to see that. Now, I do think the air turbine probably does generate significantly more particles than, than does the, you know, done a, does a non-air tool. But I think that there's some, you know, this may be underestimating production a little bit. And the authors would tend to agree um, with, that, with that assessment. So I, I don't think that, you know, again, like within the confines of the study, I think these are good, but I think there are some bits and pieces here that might be, you know, important to keep in mind. Do we have a sense of um, just the air turbine versus the high-speed contra angle? Are they, um, in practice, um, are they the same expense? Um, do we have a sense of if dentists find that they um, work the same way? Or do people like, you know, are there built-in uh, barriers? Like, it would be easy to say like, well, why not have a high-speed contra angle be the standard of practice? Um, but I was wondering like what intrinsic barriers there would be to that. Yeah, so the electric hand pieces are actually fairly new in the dental community. And right now there's, um, there's kind of a cost barrier. Electric hand pieces are a lot more expensive. I think there's also a barrier on um, maybe access and training. So like a lot of the newer dentists that are in school right now, they're probably using those electric hand pieces. They're learning on them. Whereas you get a dentist that's been in practice for 20 years. He grew up with an air-driven handpiece and that's what he's been using. And there is a learning curve to it. So um, I think as time goes on, electric hand pieces will be more and more common. One question I had for Dr. Santarpia regarding the results, is yeah. this how you would normally see bacteriophage results presented? Um, as so I'm I, reading it, I'm reading it for the first time, never having seen a study like this. And so I'm looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I'm take, looking at kind of like time. the... So it's it's a little it's a little interesting. I had to go back. Um, I actually did wind up looking up the the aerosol sampler that they used, which is a um, it's a multi jet impactor. Um, so they're also not going to do because it's basically a multi jet impactor onto an auger plate. You're actually not going to get number of virus per particle. You're just going to get number of viral particles, um, which I think is an important distinction in this study, right? Because in particular with a lot of the, the bigger droplets, like the splatter zones and things like that, there could be a lot of phage in an individual droplet, especially a very large droplet that you would expect to impact out. And the, one of the limitations of this study is that there's no, you know, there's no getting the absolute number of, this is more like the number of aerosol particles that contain phage, not the number of viral aerosols, so, or the number of viruses in the air that number could be considerably higher than this if you look at it. So 
Um, and, and that, that goes for both the air samples and the settle plate samples because of how, because they are actually collected in a similar way um, and, and analyzed in a similar way, which is a little different than what I said earlier. So I would say that this is probably a, a low estimate of what you might expect the actual viral loads to be in these samples. Um, and, and, you know, because the, there's likely many, many phage particles per many, many phage per particle um, in this. And as far as like how common it would be, I mean, I'm, I'm fine interpreting these, these data um, based on other similar studies. Um, it did, I did have to go, there's like a handful of things I wish they had done a little more, which was like this maybe described the samplers themselves and their operating principles. I didn't have to go look it up. Um, and another, you know, a handful of other small things that I, you know, made it a little more difficult to interpret the data. Um, but I think that, you know, having done that, I think it's all, you know, it's all interpret. It, it all can be interpreted. Um, I also, you know, going into reading this, didn't have any idea of what the tools were or what the mitigations look like in a, um, you know, in, in any kind of intuitive way. Um, and so, like, assessing trying to look at the data and say, well, is this a reasonable, is this reasonable, is this not reasonable, like kind of result was really hard for me because I don't have the, I don't have any intu intuition on what, what these things look like. Um, I understand. I did think it was interesting that their aerosol extraction device was counterproductive pretty significantly um, <laughs> for the most part. So um, I, I wouldn't, that seemed to be pretty clear result, even in the aerosol data that those were the highest, uh, the highest particle counts were observed mm -hmm. when they used that air extraction device correlated pretty well with the, uh, the data, a lot of the data suggesting that it was uh, the aerosol extraction device, there were more viral, more virus, more viral particles observed. So, um, so and with that, like if we kind of pivot that back to like reasonable practice, the aerosol collection device versus um, what appeared to be more effective, like the high volume aspiration, Sarah, what would you be more likely to see in practice? Really the high volume evacuation, the high volume aspiration is standard of care. So um, that is that big section tube that the assistant usually holds when the doctor's working in the mouth, you know, to catch, it's meant to catch the aerosols and the droplets before they get out into the room, which, according to this study, obviously has an effect. The, the aerosol extraction device is different than the high volume oh, no. aspiration. They both have effects pushing the- uh, Above the unmitigated. The plaque forming yeah. units gotcha. up above baseline. One of the things that I was wondering as I was reading this that Dr. Santarvi, I'm, I'm interested to also get your thoughts on is, uh, so this was done in an area that had nine um, nine air changes per hour, which I was kind of shocked to see that first of all, because I feel like very few dental facilities I see are doing nine air changes per hour. Um, so I'm interested to hear- They're low. Like, the, you think that's more than so, would be in general practice? No, most places are doing less air exchanges than that. Yeah, I, I would guess high. that most of your most of your commercial buildings are probably quite a bit lower than that. I mean, yeah. I think 13 is the standard for isolation care. Um, so nine is, is actually quite high. 
Um, I think both places, I, think it's just I would a, say four to six. Yeah, I, I like nine or 10 is like laboratory, like sort of laboratory standard for, for air changes. It is high and in, in, in the discussion, the authors also sort of call that out as a, you know, as a caveat. Um, I, I would say that probably doesn't impact like the settle plate data at all because um, mm -hmm. those particles aren't going to move with the air very well. Um, but it, there's a good chance that it does in fact impact the, um, the air, like sort of those, the air numbers and, and that fallow time, which I think is um, something that they seem to be really trying to drive at is whether or not, you know, what's enough time to leave it. I think that's, that's hugely dependent upon your air change rate, how quickly the aerosol are going to be evacuated from the space. Um, the other thing that I was really, um, I kind of wish they'd done a little bit different. If you go back to figure one, um, the exhaust, there are two exhausts in the room for the, for the ventilation. And one of them is right over like where the, like the dentist chair area, which is really close to where they're taking a lot of their measurements. Oh. Um, the other one is sort of down by the foot also where they're close to where they're taking their other aerosol uh, count measurement. This is probably a little optimal, <laughs> I would guess. Um, although you're, you know, it, it's, I would kind of like to see this study done in dead air um, rather than at, at a high air change rate, just to get more of a, an indication of the, you know, what I would call like the source term. Um, but I would, I would kind of, I mean, that that's kind of like, I mean, again, it's one of the limitations. I think they were very good at like spelling it out in detail in this paper, but um, that, that it was a limitation. And it, this is clearly like a dental, like a mock dental laboratory, like some like we have here for, you know, training people in patient care and things like that. So I imagine it is quite, uh, you know, it's set up to be, you know, the very high, high fidelity training. Results. Yeah. Well, and so can we unpack that a little bit? We'll have to put some training wheels on for Kate. So this is, I get a little confused about like, um, like the, the terminology. So we have air ventilation inlets and those are things that suck or blow. Um, in the context of the room, they, uh, the inlet will be where the air comes into the room. And blow. So it's blowing down. Yeah, blowing down. Okay. And so like when we look at figure one, like since people are listening, like so we have some exhaust right over the collection devices. And so would you say like we're drawing particles towards the measurement devices or more like creating an, like a protective effect? I mean, I'm, I'm honestly struggling a little with what the airflow would look like in this room just mm -hmm. intuitively because you have the two the two outlets um my guess is that we have two an inlet here which is where the air comes into the room in that one corner and then you have two outlets which are sort of generally over the patient area um mm -hmm. and so you're kind of like pulling air from the mouth I, I think you're more likely to see that stuff kind of come up in front of the dentist and then out, um, or the dentist chair and then out, rather than go down towards the towards the foot of the bed, um, just because it's closer and you should get higher velocities right there from that outlet. So I, I would guess that most of the air from the patient's, you know, from the mock patient's mouth is actually going out that outlet. Every time you have me reference figure one, 
for those that are listening, you need to look this up because I see this floating head just screaming, <laughs> screaming every time yeah. I look at that thing. Turn me off a little bit when I know uh, <laughs> the figure one, the bottom right corner is um, probably the most disturbing image in the paper. <laughs> Absolutely um, terrifying. <laughs> it's it's terrifying to me because like I, I'm not a big fan of dental work. No, no offense to anyone in the room, but uh, <laughs> I just, I had, a, I just had a, a crown done a couple of weeks ago, and I felt like this guy. So. Yeah, yeah, blindfolded and screaming, not, not awesome. So I guess the key questions I feel like we're being asked in practice would be distance between chairs, and um, because in most, many of the practices I've been in, you have multiple chairs in one room. So even when you have a question about fallow time, in a lot of practices, there would not be fallow time because there's always a chair operating. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. So people are nodding on the podcast <clears throat> or audience can. And so um, with that, that I feel like, and I don't, I don't feel like I have enough information here to, to give any indication on how long should you wait after the procedure like they, they did want, they did an excellent job from my perspective of comparing different mitigation strategies. But my question about fallow time and how far apart should the chairs be, I feel like so, I, I don't know still. Yeah, so the fallow time, I think they tried answering in table one where they showed at the contra speed, the high speed contra angle, the fallow time was zero. Okay. So I think that's where they tried to answer that. Now, the spacing, I think they try to address in figure two. And so if you look at figure two on page four, where they're showing the mean plaque forming units and they're showing it distance out from the scary face that's blindfolded. Yeah. <laughs> um, that when you're using the high-speed contra angle, it looks like as you're getting to the edges of the operatory that it's the mean plaque forming units goes to zero. So I think that's where they tried answering it, not saying that I definitively agree. There are still that, a lot of places though, depending on what your mitigation strategies are that have that, that have those plaque forming units like clear out at the edge of the operatory. True, well, mostly with the air <clears throat> turbine. I would, so I would argue that you really can't generalize any kind of fallow time or spacing based on this study for to generalize out to, to all, you know, all practice because again, the, the airflow rate in this particular setup was quite high. And that, you know, so the fallow times, even even if you determine that in this particular scenario, you could wait, you know, very little time between patients. I think that 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 doesn't apply everywhere, um, and and you couldn't broadly. That's not broadly applicable to most practices that I've ever been in. Um, you know, you I'd have to know a whole lot more about how their ventilation system worked and and everything because that's you know you there's enough data in this where you could begin to start thinking about what that fallow time should be given a known, you know, given a known air change rate, but, you know, like, for instance, the size of the particles, they did, a, they did, a, I had some issues with their 
uh, particle measurement, like the size measurement, and not because of the way they did it, but because I wish they would have reported reported their baseline data. They're not, you know, nothing happening. What was the baseline particle count so I could at least compare because a lot of the the data is it's all based. It, it says it's all, you know, been baseline standardized by the baseline control, but they never really, they never really clearly say what that means. So this is me nitpicking a little, but um, I, you know, kind of wish they had at least given that baseline data and the math for standardizing it. I did actually try to find it in the supplement, but couldn't. Um, so either I, I just didn't find it in the time I had or, or they didn't present it. That would have been helpful to me in terms of trying to understand, you know, what, what background looked like. So like, for instance, because I would want to know, like in this case where it's nine air changes an hour, what's the time to background generated for some period of time? How long does it take to get down to where what I generated is no longer observable? Um, there's some indication in the, you know, sort of in the high speed contra angle that it's less than six minutes um, because that was their wait time. Um, and but you know, in, in the other on the other side of this, if the, the particle generation is quite high, then obviously it wasn't six minutes. It wasn't quite enough, even in this case, to get back to baseline because you're still seeing aerosol particles collected by the sampler. Um, so I would I would argue that it's even based on this study at nine air changes an hour. It's certainly more than six minutes. I don't know how much more exactly than six minutes. And again, that would depend on the air change rate in the specific scenario. So. You know, I think this begins to address that, but I don't think it's, you can't, you couldn't apply that broadly. So, and I, for the listeners, like I just did like a little bit of quick math and Kate's not a mathematician, um, but the, the width of the room was measured at 3.6 meters. And so like, if I took that in half, you know, estimating that the, the phantom head is in the exact middle of this room, then 1.8 meters would be to the edge of their room. And it looks like the saddle plates didn't go out that far, but that would be 5.9 feet. And so that, I think we were working under the assumption that there are at least six feet between, you know, this phantom head and maybe. So in practice, like, I think you could get that close to maybe like making a hypothesis. But again, I, I the key takeaway that I heard was we can't, have any conclusions about fallow time or distance between chairs? Yeah. One question that I um, I think it's it's very relevant in practice is um, the need for respiratory protection when you're right there at the head. And I think um, no conclusions in this paper about that. But I think that um, even with the mitigation strategies in place, when you're working that close to the patient's head, there's clearly a need for um, respiratory protection. Um, would we agree yeah. on that? Yeah, I, I think that's, um, you know, I, I think, like I said, because there's no airflow from the, the head's mouth here, um, really can't get an assessment of what that exposure looks like, but you're getting significant large droplet splatter come out of the mouth, even with no, you know, even with no air carriage. So I, I would, I would suggest, and your, you know, your no mitigation component does show some aerosol particles um, in the air during procedure. So I, you know, if they're breathing out at the same time, then there's that, but there's also their, you know, if they're infected with respiratory disease like SARS-CoV-2, 
most of that aerosol generation is coming from their lung. And mm -hmm. so you have like, this is, that is un, uncharacterized in this study. This is just from like, that is literally just from the, the dental procedure, right? And what might be in the saliva, which is less than what's in your respiratory tract. Um, so I would, I would argue that, you know, the need for respiratory protection, like, shouldn't be in any way caveated or, or anything by this study, because that only is really only speaks to one, one mechanism of generation of infectious aerosols and not the one that's dominantly responsible for transmission. That's very interesting. Thank you. So as I look at this study, I, I think it's telling me that this is best case scenario that you could possibly have because we have a non-breathing patient in a room with high air exchanges with an air outlet directly above the patient. Mm -hmm. And so- I do also I guess, want to call out that that patient is not breathing and they're also not gagging or choking or coughing on you. Mm -hmm. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because the authors a couple of times, like the, the amount of bacteria that they or the bacteriophage that they put in the saliva, they called a worst case scenario. But I think you guys have really yeah, illustrated it. They, they, they called the inoculum was gonna be, uh, to reflect someone with symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, is what they said. But I think yeah, you guys I, make a great point that that's, if it's only at this localized place, not if we're coughing it out, gagging it out, and um, you know pushing a bunch out through people's lungs. Yeah. So, good point. Yeah, this is worst case scenario for generation by dental procedures. I think with that very specific caveat, I think that's uh, that's appropriate. I also want to call out too, just with us having so many vaccinated individuals now, that there is the potential to have more asymptomatic disease. So you may have somebody in your chair that is positive for SARS-CoV-2, but doesn't have any symptoms. I mean, I, that's been a problem all along. I think that's the, one of the features of this virus that's made it so um, insidious over the last two years, almost now, um, is that asymptomatic transmission is, has, been a, has been a real thing since before we had vaccines. And now with vaccines, although it does seem as though vaccinated individuals Re, like replicate fewer virus and maybe aren't as, you know, aren't as prone to transmitting. I think that this is a special case too, where if you have lot, if you are replicating virus in your upper respiratory system, it is making it into your saliva. And then you are doing something that is now spraying that out of your mouth. Um, I think that it increases, you know, even someone who might not be super contagious, just from, you know, normal respiratory emissions, you, there's some enhanced and, you know, they've demonstrated it, some enhanced risk here um, because you're generating aerosols from the mouth that you wouldn't normally. So um, I, I tend to be, I, I like to be a nice person. Um, and so I think that the research done here, it answered in a, some important questions, right? You can't boil the ocean with every single study. We have to break things down into useful bits. Um, and so I think like I, I'm pleased to see what was done in this case. I know a lot more about the mitigation strategies than I did before. Um, 
what do you guys think um, would be a logical next step? Like if we, if we had some lucky listener on the program today who is designing studies or funding studies, what will be the next step? I mean, I think, I think for me, I'd like to see, I'd like to see something in, in a reduced airflow environment or a controlled, you know, something, something less than that. Um, I'd like to see a little bit of exhaust air from the mannequin um, just to get some more fidelity on like exhaled particles during, um, you know, like ex the generation of, or, sorry, the transmission of the generated particles just through normal breathing. Um, I think that I'd like to see, I'd like to see something um, maybe where we could get a more idea of like actual viral load rather than just viral particles and be able to separate those two a little bit. Um, I, although I will say that much of that might be, um, you, there might not be so much a reason to go that far in the, you know, in, in sort of a risk assessment kind of study, right? I think, I really think that this methodology for enumeration is probably sufficient for, for determining risk. Um, I wouldn't go back to say like, you know, oh, this is an, this area was, is clearly not, doesn't have any infectious doses because the numbers are low. I think that, you know, but I think if you look at the risk perspective from, we observed viral aerosols here. So therefore there's risk associated with that area. It is more or less than this other area, but not more or less than some area not included in the study. <laughs> you know, so like within the context of the study itself, I think you can start determining risk. And I, and I don't think that there's a reason to go like over and above the, you know, sort of the way they did the enumeration and things in this. But um, I do think it's, it would be helpful to have, to add a little bit of realism. I think, again, I think the authors would agree, right? Because they, they point out these, the sort of these and the limitations of their study that, you know, that, you know, their mannequin didn't have any respiration. The mannequin, you know, it was super high air change rate. The, I think, you know, it was, you could argue about whether or not the, the position of the mannequin was idealized for, you know, capturing what, what or the other, you know, but again, it was pretty close to the exhaust vent. And so it's probably a little bit, um, it would be nicer to see it like maybe away from that exhaust uh, vent so that you get a little more uh, spread of particles and maybe not just train into the, into the exhaust outlet. So, um, it, I mean, it, it's a few things, but it's a great, it's a good methods paper. It's a good foundation for future work. I think. Well said. In my mind, I feel like they could take it and move it into like a real dental office and try replicating it there. Cause I feel like in a true dental office, you won't have that air exchange rate. I don't think I'm trying to remember when I go to the dentist, if there's uh, um, an air exchange, like an outlet directly above my face. I don't it's think not there standard. is. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are in some offices just because of the way the HVAC system mm -hmm. is, but. It would be so, a lot, not generally like right. guided. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think that ventilation, I mean, is ventilation a big concern? And so I, this is something I actually don't know. And I'm, is ventilation something that before COVID was uh, something that dental offices were designed around, right? No. I didn't think so. Mm -mm. No. So and I wouldn't expect any, any consistency then. 
<laughs> no, and it's funny that this this study brought out um, the use of these aerosol extraction devices and how much they really don't help a whole lot. At because all. when when COVID started, you know, a, a lot of states shut down dental offices unless it was an emergency. Well, then you have all of these dentists going, oh no, what do I do with this new respiratory disease? And there were a lot of companies that came up with some really good marketing ploys for people to buy these. And it's like, just like a giant elephant trunk in the patient's face that sucks up the air. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people panic bought. Yep. Well, there've been a lot of, <laughs> there's been an unfortunate lot of snake oil sold in the last year. So um not just confined to dental practice. <laughs> Very true. Well, Dr. Santarpia, thank you so much for coming on. Yes, Dr. Santarpia, thank you so much for spending your hour with us. We really appreciate your time. And for our listeners out there, we hope you enjoyed this little bit of journal club and discussion, and we will catch you on the next episode of the Mouthy IP. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office. 